Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for episode 25 of the Mark Guy Show. Uh, of course, I've got to continue discussing the election, the fallout of what's happened since Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. Still feels weird to say that. Uh, but I wanted to discuss the protests, and I wanted to discuss how, and I, I did in my previous episode, but I wanted to elaborate on it even further, how really libertarians have been right on these topics all along, and I hope that Democrats and especially the far-left progressives can start to realize what we were saying all along. We were saying what, you know, what happened under George Bush obviously was dangerous, and then Obama has continued to accelerate that, continued to make the executive branch more and more powerful. And we tried to warn you, and all it took was for somebody else to get into the office and now be able to use that power against them. And I don't think I'm going to get too deep into the weeds on that topic, considering that I already discussed it yesterday. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory what my position is, what what libertarians' positions have been, and my hope that there can now be a coalition with progressives and the left and libertarians to try to limit the power of the presidency so that so much isn't riding on the presidential race and that you can't have somebody win that is so antithetical to what you believe and uh, and be able to wield that power against you. It's one thing having somebody be elected that you don't think represents you well, but it all depends on the power that they have. You know, Donald Trump could be basically doing whatever he wants in his personal life, and that doesn't really affect you until he gets into the position of president and now is able to wield the power that that position brings him. So that's the real issue, is the power that can be wielded. It's it's not necessarily about the person, really. It's really about the position itself. And I think we need to work together in order to limit the power of the executive. Uh, but I wanted, what I want to talk about a little bit more is secession and the idea of secession. So you've had CalExit... California exit, stylized like Brexit, doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as Brexit did, the British exit from the European Union. But there's renewed interest out in California for California to secede from the United States and become its own country. And apparently there is, I don't know if they've succeeded in doing this yet or if they're in the process of of trying to get this on the ballot for 2019, have a referendum in California. California does referendums a lot like the UK does, you know, a lot like Britain does. So they're able to have this kind of referendum to see, does the populace want to secede from the United States? And a lot of people have jumped on board. I've seen progressives, a lot of people that are so against Trump supporting this idea, retweeting it or posting on Facebook or saying that, yes, California should secede. And, of course, you're seeing people on the other side because California is such a representation of uh, the, I think, regressive left, the kind of safe space type of culture that so many people are rallying against. California is seen as one of the worst, uh, you know, worst areas that are pushing that kind of rhetoric, that kind of ideology on the rest of America. So a lot of people on the other side are saying, yeah, go ahead, go for it, secede. But it's funny to me that secession, you talk about it and you bring it up as a valid way for people to decide how they want to be governed. 
and I've always been in favor of secession. If if a state wants to leave the United States, it should have the right to leave the United States. That's how the United States was formed. It was states coming together and agreeing to, to be under a federal government with certain limited powers, and the states would return or would uh would retain certain powers and authority themselves. And if they wanted to end that agreement, they could easily do that. That's really how this country was set up. That's why it's called the United States. That's why all the states are states and they're not provinces like they are in other countries because they're not just they're not political subdivisions. They really are their own states that have come together in a kind of confederacy under the federal government. Now, of course, we've gone much more to now the states effectively being provinces. And I don't know if the states in the U.S. hold that much power than the provinces do in Canada, for example. I don't see too much of a difference now, but that was the original intention. So so states should have had the right to secede. And I think if they didn't have the right to secede, the Constitution never would have been ratified by the states because basically that would have meant that once you join the United States, you are there forever, regardless of what happens under that federal government, regardless of what happens. The people would not have stood for that back in the late 18th century. They just would not. And that never would have been ratified. So I think states do have the right to secede from the country. That's one of the big reasons why, you know, despite not agreeing with the South ideologically in terms of them having slaves and continuing to have slavery legal it was every right of those states to decide you know we don't want to live under the rules that the federal government is setting for us so we would like to leave and create our own country and they should have been allowed to secede 600,000 people would not have died in the civil war had that been allowed to happen but anybody that has made this sort of case in recent times Tom Woods is a great example of this. I know he's been called a neo-Confederate for basically making the point that states have the right to secede. The federal government was encroaching upon the southern states. At least they thought that the federal government was encroaching upon them in the Civil War. They tried to secede. That's one of their rights because the Constitution would not have been ratified without the ability to secede. And if you had tried to say back then that states... Once you join the United States, you are in it forever. And if you try to leave, you're going to be invaded and you're going to be forced to stay within the United States. It never would have been ratified. And that's the point that Tom Woods tries to make. But he's been labeled a neo-Confederate by a lot of the mainstream media and been called an extremist. And, you know, they even extended to him being a racist because that's what he supports. They extend him supporting secession to him supporting slavery. But all he's doing is being consistent because I fully support California's right now. You know, is California now, can you compare that to the southern states prior to the Civil War? Are those really similar situations whatsoever in terms of the ideology driving those states or that state to leave the United States? No, I mean, it really couldn't be two any more different situations except that they are both group, they're both areas that would like to leave the United States, states that may want to leave the United States. Of course, the California referendum, I don't know if it would pass, and it very well wouldn't pass. So I'm not trying to talk like this is imminent or anything. And of course, the referendum, if it even does get on the ballot, it wouldn't be till 2019. So this wouldn't be till a ways down the line. But it was something I thought I needed to talk about. But the mainstream media labels Tom Woods 
a racist, you know, or at the very least a neo-Confederate for making those points. And we're saying that Lincoln overstepped the bounds placed on him by the Constitution. And, you know, placed on him by the discussions surrounding the ratifying of the Constitution, the ratification of the Constitution, which I certainly agree with, without a doubt, that Lincoln overstepped his, uh, you know, his executive restraints that were placed on him. And really, you can trace a lot of the executive overreach now back to what happened under Lincoln, because I think that kind of progressive idea that we're going to invade you in order to spread our ideals to you. We need to impose our way of doing things on you. In that war, it was the North imposing those ideals on the South. But then it became extended to now going overseas and doing it elsewhere. And then you saw really the 20th century was the U.S. really expanding from being more isolationist, at least in terms of foreign policy, to getting involved in these huge wars in Europe and intervening in areas overseas, in countries overseas, interfering in other nations' sovereignty. I think you can trace a lot of that back to Cl- or back to Lincoln, and we're still experiencing issues today because the executive has gotten so overwhelmingly powerful. And you have instances like FDR taking private gold from people during the Great Depression, you have instances of just such stark executive overreach over the last hundred years that the the original framers of the Constitution couldn't even imagine this having happened. So obviously, yes, overreach of the federal government is what ha- it is what now results in California feeling like it needs to secede because their guy or girl didn't get into office and isn't going to wield all the power that the president now holds. And of course, these two issues are intertwined, so that's what I opened to talking about, but that's related to secession, the federal government having so much power, and more specifically, the executive branch within the federal government holding so much power, because it's kind of a double-edged sword. that The federal government has too much power, but then Congress was supposed to be by far the most powerful body or bodies in the federal government. So not only do you have the federal government wielding too much power, but it's not allocated correctly. So the volume of power is too much, and the percentage of power, if you want to break it down that way, going toward the executive is far too high. So it's really doubly bad in that sense. That's why California feels the need to secede. We don't get our guy into office. We think Trump is so inflammatory that we need to leave the country. And I say they have every right to, and I completely support them. But I also want people on the left, the progressives, that's most of the people that are making these kind of points that are now going onto the side of supporting this ballot initiative. They need to see now that secession is a right within this constitutional framework. States have the right to secede. And I don't care what the reason is. If that state wants to leave, they can leave. It doesn't matter if it's for the most humanitarian reasons in the world. They don't want to be a part of some of the evil things that our government has done, or it could be because Utah wants to institute polygamy and polygamy is is illegal in the United States. And they would like to have their own nation and be able to do things the way that they want to do things. That is every right of those states to, to do as they please. 
And if you had tried to say otherwise, that the federal government has the right to force states to stay within the United States, this country wouldn't exist because the Constitution never would have been ratified. And we would have remained 13 individual colonies at best loosely bound, loosely bound together by the Articles of Confederation. Or, you know, maybe that would have broken down and it would have been individual countries and we would have been far more like a less populated Europe, you know, in terms of the different states and how, how populated they are. We would have been much more like Europe than being one country today. And we probably would have even, well, almost certainly, we would have far starker differences regionally. And that's one of the big things about this race, too, that I really want to get across. I know a lot of people are talking about this, too, but just the cultural divide between the cities and, you know, the between the big coastal cities, really, and the smaller cities and rural areas inland. And it's pretty incredible. It it really is just how different parts of America are and how urban America doesn't really understand rural America. The cultures are so different and rural America doesn't really understand urban America. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that either way. I think when this when the country is this big, it's bound to happen. I think where the issue comes in to account though, and where it begins to matter is the people in the coastal cities. So the urban elites, I'll call them. And I know that there are a lot of poor people in these cities too. So I don't want to say that, but the predominant voices coming from those cities are part of this urban elite. They denigrate the rest of this country at every turn. And you're seeing that now Trump wins and what do people say? What are people saying? Shame on you, red states, for supporting a racist, bigoted guy like Donald Trump. For supporting the worst candidate for president in American history. That's what people are saying. Shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself, white America. You did this. This is all your fault. We hate you. And I, you saw a lot of people swearing at white America and, you know... And I know that not all of flyover country is white. It is more white than the rest of the country. <clears throat> but they want to act like middle America doesn't represent America. doesn't represent modern America. That was a tweet that I, I just read. And I, I've seen similar sentiments elsewhere. That these these people in flyover country need to get out more. Need to you know visit cities. Need to see people from other cultures. But... That means they're implying that the cities do represent America, that that's modern America, and that the rest of America, middle America, flyover country, whatever you want to call it, isn't in line with modern America, but the cities are. But neither are a representation of America. It's a mixture of the two, and they're two, they're two very different places. But what the urban elites don't understand is that when they're trying to say that basically... Uh, middle America is backwards. That means that they're saying that the cities are progressive. And I don't mean progressive in terms of uh, political leaning, though they do tend to lean left. But I mean progressive in terms of being ahead of the times. And then the rest of the country isn't. You know, they need to catch up. Or, you know, we need to understand that they're lagging behind. That's kind of the condescending tone that people are now 
using to talk about the rest of America. And I think it's just demeaning. And I, I think this is the kind of attitude they're trying to explain it in a respectable way in a, in a respectful way, but there still are these undertones of condescension. And I think this is the attitude. It's still coming out. This is the attitude that helps to get Donald Trump elected. Middle America, people acted like poorer whites, working class whites, had nothing to be concerned about. They were told you have privilege because of the color of your skin. And where the real issues are in this country is with minorities struggling. But poor whites have been struggling in this country too. They've been going through the same negative trends that a lot of minority communities throughout the country have been going through. But you don't hear about what's going on in the working class white communities. You don't really hear about that on the national stage. And so they have somebody like Donald Trump that comes to them and they seem to buy into his economic message. They think that he's going to be better for them in economic terms than Hillary Clinton is. And I said yesterday that I don't think he's going to be better for them than Hillary Clinton would have been. You know, I don't think there's going to be much of a difference for them to be very honest, but all that matters is what they thought. All that matters is what they thought when they went into the voting booth. And so that's why they decided to vote for Donald Trump. They didn't become racist overnight over the last four years because these were areas, the areas that swung toward Trump supported Obama in 2008 and 2012. And in a lot of those areas overwhelmingly supported Barack Obama, but they swung to Trump this time around. So it's not about race, it's about these people saw Donald Trump as a better option for them economically, and they think that the Democratic Party has lost touch with with them, with people in their predicament, and they focus so much on identity politics and focusing on the plight of minorities that they've ignored the issues of these predominantly white working class communities that are struggling in very similar similar ways to minority communities throughout this country. So I think that was the story of the election. And this was a big part of these urban elites and the Democratic Party is dominated by them. By these intellectual, you know, a lot of these intellectual types at colleges and isolated in a lot of ways from rural America, from middle America. And they're the ones making the decisions for the Democratic Party. And then your nominee, of course, Hillary Clinton, couldn't be further removed from what goes on in middle America. You know, she's been part of the machine for decades. She's extremely rich. And I'm not trying to imply that, that Donald Trump is intimately familiar with middle America either. Of course, he's very similar, also an urban elite. And I think he just knew better. I don't know if he had better... Uh, guidance on this or if he just is able to do it naturally but he was able to better connect with these people on a certain level and no it wasn't because he was talking about building the wall it was because he was coming into these communities and saying i understand your plight and i'm going to do this this and this and of course they weren't very specific things and i don't think there are things that are actually going to happen or going to benefit people economically but they responded to it so I think that's the big story of of this election too. There, are, I mean, there are a lot of things to talk about. And I talked about a lot of things in my episode yesterday. I don't want to keep reiterating the same points, but I think 
the urbanites, people in the coastal cities need to wake up and need to realize that you can't denigrate the rest of the country and expect those people to continue to turn out for you and to continue to vote for your chosen candidates. I think that's what happened here. Another thing I wanted to discuss, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but is the Electoral College and how it's being denigrated, demonized by a lot of people on the people in the Hillary Clinton camp or people in the anti-Trump camp and how they want the Electoral College abolished. They want it to be by a popular vote, whoever whoever gets the most votes for president becomes president. That's what they think. And I discussed in my previous podcast why the Electoral College exists, uh, because this has started to come out, but it's become a lot more evident, at least maybe in my circles and people that I'm reading. I don't know how quickly people came out and were blaming the Electoral College for this result, but I'm seeing it a lot more now. And a lot of people saying, oh, this is an antiquated system from the 1800s and you know we can't continue to use this it's it's arcane and and we need to go to a direct democracy type system and i i I explained why i disagreed with that in my podcast yesterday but i wanted to expand on that a little bit in this episode and discuss why actually the electoral college could be the savior for a hillary clinton presidency and this isn't how people are framing it in the Clinton camp. People are just now saying, oh, because the the uh, the delegates can conceivably not vote for Donald Trump, even though the people of that state wanted, you know, they voted in a majority for Donald Trump. They don't necessarily have to cast their vote, their, you know, their electoral vote in, in the Electoral College for Donald Trump. Now, maybe Clinton can somehow win or we can get Trump under that 270 threshold. But they're not looking at really the historical reasons why the Electoral College was set up and why it's set up that way. And really the reason, you know, the reason why it was, it was because the founders were very distrustful of direct democracy. They did not trust the people to be able to elect the most qualified person for the job and that's why states would would choose and how the framers envision it was it would be district by district and so somebody would represent a particular district you know that district the people would would speak and oftentimes probably the, the delegate would cast the vote for the way that their district voted but they didn't have to and you could have stopped it say if a uh, if somebody came along and the 51% was riled up, but their whole platform was, we're going to kill the other 49%. They hoped that the delegates could see above that and would be able to elect somebody far more level-headed for the job. So this actually is the way that the Electoral College was out there to prevent a fascist from rising to power. And to provide a check on direct democracy, because that's what is so dangerous about direct democracy, is you can have 51% of the people deciding to steal everything from 49% of the other people, and the other 49% cannot do anything about it, because the 51% have spoken. And if that position has a lot of power, then 
the 49% is absolutely screwed. And, you know, you're bound to eventually get into huge resentments and probably civil wars of some sort under that. And that's why the founding fathers were very distrustful of, of direct democracy like that. That's why this was a constitutional republic. You know, now we've gradually burst down the barriers and we are far closer to a democracy than to a republic now you know now we have direct election of u.s senators that was never supposed to be the case in the original framing of the constitution uh it was originally they're supposed to be elected by the state legislatures and so it's supposed to be something similar i guess to the house of lords and the house of commons you know not exactly but the house of representatives was the directly elected representatives of the people and then the senate was the more you know the anointed choices by the state legislatures. So the states would determine however they elect their legislators, then those legislators would figure out, okay, we're going to vote on and, and nominate our senators to the Senate in Washington, D.C. So that's, you know, that's one example where we've broken down the Republican safeguards in place. And Republican, I mean, in terms of being structured like a republic rather than like a direct democracy um, and we've done that with the president too because it's now turned into the states just go with the the will of their people and the delegates vote the way that the state votes and that's typically how it's done that's commonplace now but if you look back like at what at what alexander hamilton said and he was one of the original framers very involved in the constitution you know wrote some of the federalist papers it wasn't anywhere near as intimately involved as James Madison was, but he said, quote, a small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass will be most likely to possess the information and discernment requisite to such complicated tasks. And so the founders, they assumed this would happen district by district. I already said that. Uh, and really that plan was carried out and was done that way up until the late 19th century until states started to go the way of their delegates just go the way of whoever wins the popular vote in that state but you still do see some states do it differently and you saw maine was an example of that where they have their four electoral votes and three of them are three of them go to who wins the popular vote and then there's another district so there are two different districts in maine and that other district can go to somebody else and it went to Donald Trump. So Hillary Clinton won three of the four electoral votes in Maine and then Donald Trump won the fourth. And that was more in line of, of what the framers thought uh, would be how this would, you know, this would go and you wouldn't have quite the same state by state divide. I mean, if you, if you look at the electoral map and you look at New York, which is where I grew up. Look at the separation there. New York is strong. New York City is strongly blue, goes strongly Democrat always, and then the most of the rest of the state tends to go red. Uh, there are a lot of swing counties. I think I grew up in a swing county. It went for Trump this election, went for Romney last election, but it went for Obama in 2008. Um, it went for Clinton in his two elections but it went for Bush in 2004. I'm not sure what it did in 2000, if it went uh, Bush or Gore. But Minnesota is very much like that too. I live basically right on the North Dakota-Minnesota border. 
And Minnesota, if you look at the map, how red most of that state is, and then really Minneapolis and the surrounding areas and Duluth pretty much are the, the strong blue areas. So having different districts and being able to send your electoral votes based on how those districts vote is a step it's a step it's a step further away from direct democracy and there's a there's a removal there from from direct democracy but really what the what the founders envisioned is that those delegates would be able to cast their vote really how they thought best and yes there probably would be pressure to vote the way that your populace voted and probably considering that they would come from that area at least in the the way that they envisioned it these would be you know people that were community leaders in this particular area uh they would tend to reflect the values and the interests of the people that that they're representing so that's how the electoral college was supposed to vote or supposed to be when it was originally conjured up by our founding fathers and it's turned into something completely different from what they originally envisioned. I still like the idea of the Electoral College because I think it is a way that the more populous states can't run roughshod on the rest of the country because uh, you could have California, New York. Um, I mean, those are the two most populous blue states, but running roughshod on, on the rest of the country. And that's really how the Electoral College has balanced the presidential races over time but this could have been so if we'd stuck to what the constitution says and we hadn't transitioned into this more direct democracy hillary clinton could be president right now and of course i don't know if under that system if we would have had the same two candidates or if things would have been completely different there's no way to know but say if we still had those limits in place and each delegate went and represented their district and if enough people were really scared enough of Donald Trump and really did think that he was this fascist authoritarian that that so many people are saying in the anti-Trump camp and in these not my president rallies, then they could have switched their vote, their electoral vote from the will of the people that they're representing. They could have done that. And that's one of the safeguards that was there as part of the Electoral College. But this is what happens. I'm not trying to say the the Constitution is perfect by any means. There are certainly flaws. And I don't want to be a a Constitution worshiper. But these were brilliant people that crafted the Constitution. And the things that they did, they did for a reason. And most of them are very well thought out. And if you're comparing how we do things today to the way that they drew it up, those ways of doing things are far optimal to the way we do them today. And so I think there's another area I've talked about having now a left libertarian, you know, a, a progressive libertarian coalition is maybe you should start thinking about, maybe there is something good in the constitution. Maybe we don't need a living constitution. Maybe it backfires on us because that's exactly what has happened here. And a lot of the, the progressives, I think, led led the way back in the, back in the late 19th century to move more toward direct democracy and to do things the way that we do them now because they thought that they can get a majority of the, they can get a majority of the vote and they can you know they can dictate policy. 
well, now it's backfiring on you. And now you have a majority of the country, and I know I'm saying majority, at least in the electoral college terms, but you have a substantial portion of the population that's going against what you've preached for years. It's a rebuke of Obama. It's a rebuke of the Clinton dynasty. It's a rebuke of really establishment Democrats over decades. And if you had the original constitutional safeguards in place, maybe things would have gone differently here. Maybe they would have been scared of Trump like you are. Maybe they would have seen Trump as a fascist authoritarian like you do. And they would have gone to the Electoral College and cast their vote differently. But that's not going to happen because of the the precedent that's been set. So a lot of times you reap what you sow. And I think we're seeing that over and over again with the left was plenty, you know, they were ready to sit back and let Obama do whatever he wanted and, and not criticize him for taking on more and more executive power and for doing a lot of the things that he did and keeping us involved in wars overseas because it was their guy in office. They weren't going to criticize it because they thought, you know, he can do a lot with this power. He's, he's our guy. We align with him generally ideologically so he can, he can ram through healthcare legislation and he can ram through whatever executive orders he wants. And we love it because we agree with him. But all it takes is for the other guy to get into office. And all that falls apart and blows up right in your face. So I'm not saying I don't want to gloat. I want to move forward and I want to now have a coalition. I'm not changing my principles and what I've been harping on for years. But I want to make it clear that this hypocritical stuff isn't going to fly and it's going to keep blowing up in your face. And it's the same thing with the Trump supporters. If they now allow Trump to do whatever he wants because he's their guy and say that things don't go, don't go well. And then in 2020 you have Keith Ellison or Elizabeth Warren or whoever the Democrats end up running win. Then now all of a sudden you're back to the other, the other team's guy ramming things down your throat because of all the tr- all the power that you allowed Trump to take on for himself and to continue to make the presidency more and more powerful. So I hope that these are more of the discussions that we can have and I, I want to have a coalition and it's difficult because I think I've gotten this impression from following a lot of other libertarian leaning people online, a lot of other libertarian type personalities and it's been way too easy to continue to criticize the left. And I've been victim of it too, just because I think they've made complete asses of themselves throughout this cycle overall. Uh, And it's been easy to pick out where they've been hypocrites time and time and time and time again. And a substantial portion of the left are the, are the safe space type people that are trying to control people's speech and are really, in my opinion, being more authoritarian than really the Trump supporters have been. Uh, The people supporting Trump have been. So I know it's not easy to then go from that, from constantly pointing out these people being hypocrites and criticizing them over and over again. I'm talking about the, the, the regressive left. But now I think we need to have a coalition with them. That's that's what needs to happen. 
I'm not confident that they're going to realize that a lot of this is their fault. That really, I would say most of it is is their fault for playing identity politics, for sitting back and letting their guy take on more and more power while he was in office, um, for ignoring the plight of working class white Americans. I think it's all blowing up in their faces and they deserve it. And I, I don't want to give them that much credit that I think they're going to wake up and realize that they're to blame. Instead, they're going to throw it back at white working class America or white America or the Midwest or the South or, you know, whatever, whatever group of people they want to project their mistakes onto, that's what they're going to do. They're going to continue to say, shame on the rest of the country. The rest of the country is a bunch of uneducated hick bigots. And that's why Donald Trump became president rather than looking in the mirror and looking at what did we do to create the Donald Trump phenomenon? Because really a lot of it can be traced back to those things that they did and that they've done and that they're probably going to continue to do. So I'm probably giving them too much credit to think they're going to wake up and realize, you know, maybe we should have listened to what the libertarians have told us. Maybe we should look in the mirror. Maybe we should form a coalition with them. Maybe we were complicit in the Donald Trump phenomenon emerging. Maybe they will. I'd, I'm not optimistic. I think you saw how Republicans switch gears so much from allowing George Bush to take on so much power to then criticizing Obama from day one in office when he was doing many of the same things that George Bush did and just kind of continuing the same policies and continuing the same rule by executive order and continuing to involve us in the same wars and continuing to expand entitlements and just expanding the, the size and scope of government but they criticize it because it wasn't their guy now in office. So the Republicans are guilty of it too, but the Republicans aren't the ones that we're going to be able to make a coalition with, going to be able to form a coalition with in order to limit executive power because now they have control of the executive branch and of both houses of Congress. So they have no incentive now to want to limit executive power. And if I thought that they would, I would be saying, yeah, let's have a let's have a right libertarian coalition to try to do this because it doesn't matter to me who I join up with. Both sides are, are hypocritical. I'm very critical of both sides, but right now it makes sense that libertarians on the left need to get together and need to figure out, okay, what can we do over these next four years to solve things that we can agree on? So I think... Uh, that's just about everything I've got for this episode. I could probably talk quite a bit longer. I'm already at almost 40 minutes, it looks like. So I tend to try to keep them closer to 30 minutes. But I know yesterday I went over 50, and I don't want to go over 40 today. So I appreciate the listen. Hopefully I'll have another one or maybe even two out over this weekend, depending on what comes of these huge protests. I didn't talk about those, but there seem to be protests. Anytime anything goes against the way that progressives would like it to go. They're riots now. And these are protests, and they've actually turned into riot status, definitely in Portland. I'm not sure if anywhere else has really reached that point yet. Uh, but that's all I've got for today. So have a fantastic Veterans Day, and, uh, and enjoy your long weekend.